Good morning, my name is Brian, and this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 125. Uh, Psalm 125. Psalm 125 is the sixth of 15 Psalms of Ascent. And you may remember that this past summer we went through the Psalms of Ascent. Uh, Psalm 125, however, was the psalm that got away. I was exposed to COVID uh, just a couple of days before I was supposed to preach that psalm, and so in an abundance of caution, we decided that it would be best for me not to preach. But when I think about Psalm 125, I can't think of a better psalm to start the new year, because Psalm 125 tells us that we need to keep our eye on the mountain. Now, when I say a psalm of ascent, I don't mean a psalm of ascent, A-S-S-E-N-T, like to ascent to knowledge, to know something. No, this is ascent, A-S-C-E-N-T, to ascend something, to climb something. You see, when we think about orientation and directions, when we say we're going up, we're going up north. So we're going up to Memphis, or we're going down to New Orleans. But in the Bible, your travel was always oriented by elevation. And Mount Zion was 2,500 feet above sea level. And so wherever you were in Israel, you were always going up to Jerusalem. And God required that Israel made that pilgrimage to Zion, this trip to Jerusalem, this city on a mountain, three times a year. It was the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Booths, and the Passover. Now, uh, in 2019, men's ministry took our own pilgrimage to Zion. We put 32 guys into two vans in one car and went down to New Orleans to see NBA rookie sensation Zion Williamson. It was a little disappointing. Zion was hurt, so we had to rename the trip Interstate to Ingram, Highway to Holiday, Road to Reddick. Zion Williamson wasn't there, and that was a little disappointing. But the trip was still well worth it, right? Because we got to bond and connect and laugh together. There's something about a trip, a journey, with other believers that brings you together. And I want to propose to you this morning that that's the essence of the Christian life. That the Christian life is a long journey with other believers towards a final destination. The Christian life is a long journey with other believers towards a final destination. That's why we refer to the Christian life as the Christian walk, right? Did you know that in the early church, right after Jesus died, the way they referred to themselves was the way, right? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They referred to themselves as the way because the Christian life is a journey. Do you know why God called his people to make this pilgrimage to Zion three times a year, he wanted them to rehearse this journey. He wanted to remind them that they were travelers, pilgrims, foreigners, sojourners, right? That this place was not their home. And oh, do we need to be reminded that this place 
is not our home. We try to make this place our home again and again. And then God gave His people 15 songs to sing on this journey, to give them meaning on this journey, to help interpret the journey, to help them understand the journey. And unlike the disappointment of men's ministry, at the end of this journey, this pilgrimage to Zion, Mount Zion was always there. Zion was a mountain, right? Immovable, fixed, reliable. And that mountain was their final destination. But it also oriented their journey. My family and I love to travel out to Colorado. And so Lee and I will load up our six girls, ages 19 to 11, in a rented 15-passenger van, and we'll begin the drive of over 1,000 miles. My favorite part of this long journey is as you kind of get through New Mexico and you start to get to the Colorado border and you begin to see the Rocky Mountains rise, right? I looked it up. The Rocky Mountains are 12,000 feet above sea level. And what that means is that you can begin to see the Rocky Mountains rise from 134 miles out. And so at 70 miles an hour, when you begin to see the Rocky Mountains rise at 134 miles out, you get to see the Rocky Mountains rise for about two hours going, let's say, 70 miles an hour. You know, because that's the posted speed limit out there. And you get to see them rise for two, for two hours. Well, think about this pilgrimage to Zion, right? Mount Zion was 2,500 2500 miles above sea level. And that means that you can see Mount Zion from about 61 miles away. But they weren't in a van going 70 miles an hour. They were walking by foot with small children and animals, which meant that they were probably traveling 10 to 20 miles a day. Okay? Which meant that if Mount Zion, if you can see it begin to rise 61 miles uh, away, and you're traveling at 10 to 20 miles a day, you get to see Mount Zion rise for three to six days on their journey. So as they're all packed up and they're on this pilgrimage to Zion, you can hear the children saying, Mom, Dad, where are we going? And they could just point to the mountain and they could say, see, that's where we're going. That's where we're headed, right? You see, the mountain was not only their final destination, it also oriented their journey. And may I suggest to you this morning, brothers and sisters, that on this long journey with other believers towards a final destination, sometimes we need to look up and behold the mountain. We need to meditate on the mountain. We need to remember the mountain because that is our final destination and that will orient our journey too. Brothers and sisters, keep your eye on the mountain. Here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. When your journey takes you through darkness, when your journey takes you through darkness, pray for justice and take refuge in the mighty fortress. 
When your journey takes you through darkness, pray for justice and take refuge in the mighty fortress. And always, always keep your eye on the mountain. We'll look at our passage this morning under three headings. In verse 3, we'll look at a dark shadow. In verses 4 and 5, we'll consider a prayer for justice. And in verses 1 and 2, we'll look at a mighty fortress. A dark shadow, a prayer for justice, and a mighty fortress. Would you focus your attention with me then on Psalm 125? A song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But to those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there were times in 2020 where we felt your darkness in our land and in our city and maybe even in our own hearts. And Father, I pray that as the calendar turns, that you would be at work in our hearts, that the light would break in, that you would help us to keep our eye on the mountain. As we come to Psalm 125 this morning, I pray that you would convince us of our sin and misery, that you would enlighten our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and that you would renew our wills by the power of your gospel through the work of your Holy Spirit and the mediation of your Son. I ask that you would forgive the one who teaches his sins, for they are many. May we see Jesus and Him only. Amen. So first of all this morning, let's consider a dark shadow. A dark shadow. Verse 3. And I'm starting with verse 3 because it puts the psalm in its context. It sets the scene. If I were to tell you a fairy tale, and I began, and you can imagine some deep voice uh, here, Now a dark shadow covered the land, and the shadows grew longer, and the days grew shorter. You might think I was quoting Lord of the Rings with Tolkien. But you would understand that wickedness and evil were growing in the land. And that's the setting of verse 3, and that's the setting of the psalm. Now we don't know when the psalm was written, it seems like a later date is likely, but it's included in the Psalter in a time of post-exilic disappointment around 400 B.C. when Israel had returned to the land after exile, but they were still under Persian rule. They didn't own the land. There was no king on the throne. In 400 B.C., Israel was under a wicked scepter. And to understand verse 3 in its context... It helps to add the word forever 
at the end of the verse line. Look, look there at verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous forever. Okay? So you see, it's not only setting the scene, right? There is a scepter of wickedness in the land. There is a dark shadow in the land now, but it's also a promise. It's a promise that the wicked shadow, that oppression, that that deep injustice won't rest on the land forever. And I think that that's something that we need to hear when we feel that darkness settling over our land and beginning to seep into our own souls. We need to hear that a new day is coming when the dawn will break and the shadows will flee away. We need to know that God has put a limit on the shadows. He's put a limit on the injustice. Right? You know that shadows, by their very definition, are hemmed in and defined by light Right? The edge of the shadow is where the light breaks through and overtakes the darkness. And God is limiting the rule of the scepter of wickedness. And do you know why he's setting a limit to the rule of the scepter of wickedness? Keep reading, verse 3. Lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. And I like the New American Standard translation here. It says, so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. You see, the sense here is that the injustice is so thick and the oppression is so toxic that it might even begin to influence the righteous. That the righteous might even be tempted to do injustice themselves, imitating the wicked scepter in the darkness. But God won't let that happen. God will shatter the wicked scepter before the righteous are pulled under, before the righteous succumb to this temptation. God will provide a way out. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overcome you that that is not common to man. God is faithful And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Or so that the righteous will not put forth their hands to do wrong. Now think about this from the perspective of the mountain. Mount Zion has been there the whole time watching, right? As empires come and empires go, there have been attacks and oppression throughout Israel's history by Egypt and the Philistines and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks. Mount Zion perhaps could quote a few lines of that King George song in Hamilton that I'd be really tempted to sing if that were my gift. Maybe somebody else can sing it for you, right? You know what I'm saying. Oceans rise, empires fall. We have seen each other through it all, right? Empire after empire has come and gone, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and yet the mountain still remains. Wicked scepters have passed through, and the mountain still stands, 
Pilgrimages still happen. Circumstances change. Rulers come and go. But what's important remains. You see, the scepter of wickedness is only fleeting. It won't last. It will not rest on the land allotted to the righteous forever. And that's a promise that can be an anchor to your soul in times of darkness. Then secondly, I want to consider a prayer for justice. Verses 4 and 5, a prayer for justice. So how do the righteous survive under the scepter of wickedness? How do we resist the temptation to return injustice for injustice in the darkness? The psalmist says, we pray. Rather than taking things into his own hands, in verses 4 and 5, the psalmist turns to God, right? Before, he had been addressing the people, but now he's addressing God. Look at verses 4 and 5. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. And I want you to notice that there are two kinds of people here. The psalmist is making a distinction. Verse 4, there are those who, who are good. And verse 5, there are those who turn aside. In fact, there are only two kinds of people in the whole psalm. It's binary. It's either or. You see, there are those who are good, verse 4, who are also, verse 1, those who are trusting in the Lord, or verse 2, surrounded by the Lord, or verse 3, righteous, or verse 4, upright in their heart. And the others, those turning aside to their crooked ways, verse 5, are the ones who are holding the scepter of wickedness, verse 3. And evildoers, verse 5, there are only two kinds of people, those who are good and those who turn aside. And this is also the framework of Psalm 1, right? Psalm 1, at the very beginning of the Psalter, sets the trajectory for the whole Psalter. And in verse 6, it says this, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And that's actually the framework of the whole Bible. Ever since Genesis 3.15, the, the, the humanity has been divided into two kinds of people. There's a seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Or Psalm 1, there's the righteous and the wicked. And I can't think of a better description for these two kinds of people than we have here in Psalm 125. It's literally two participles, right? Those I-N-G words. Verse 1, it's those trusting in the Lord. And verse 5, it's those turning aside to their crooked ways. And by the way, turning aside to their crooked ways is a very appropriate way to describe these people as we are on a journey towards a final destination. 
instead of following the path and going straight on this pilgrimage to Zion to reach their final destination, they're turning aside to their crooked ways. They're charting their own course. They're choosing their own destination. They're turning away from Mount Zion. And what's their destiny? Verse 5, the Lord will lead them away with evildoers. And this is a prayer for justice. It's praying that the Lord would lead them away with the evildoers. And this justice is actually how God limits the scepter of wickedness. You see, when the Lord leads the evildoers away, verse 5, the scepter of wickedness, verse 3, goes with them. The scepter of wickedness no longer rests on the land of the righteous, and God brings freedom. God limits the darkness. God rescues His people. And we need to hear this when the scepter of wickedness casts its shadow over the land because we feel that deep longing for justice, for deliverance. And we can rest knowing that God will bring justice. It's coming. Wait for it. It's a prayer for justice. But you see, the essence of the prayer for the trusting on the other side of justice is mercy. Look at verse 4. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. Right? And the good, verse 4, are also described as having peace, verse 5. They have unshakable perseverance, verse 1. They abide forever, verse 1. They're surrounded by the Lord, verse 2. Why is that mercy? Why is doing good to those who are good, why is that mercy? We see Israel all too often could be described by the language of verse 5. And I would say, brothers and sisters, all too often we could be described by the language of verse 5 too, turning aside to their crooked ways. And after years of God putting up with Israel's rebellion and their wickedness and them turning aside to their wicked ways, do you know what God eventually did? He eventually led Israel away with the evildoers. So when the psalmist prays in verse 4, do good, O Lord, to those who are good, it's a prayer for mercy because no one is good, because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? It's a prayer of justice for the turning, but a prayer of mercy for the trusting. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good. And it's only that as God does good, that we become good. It's only that as God does good that we're upright and righteous. We are good only because God has intervened. We are good because God does good. And that's the essence of mercy. God actively intervening to do good on behalf of His people. It's a prayer for two sides of justice. It's a prayer for mercy for those who are good and for those who trust in the Lord. And it's a prayer of justice for those who are turning aside to their crooked ways. It's a prayer for two sides of justice. 
So you have a dark shadow, verse 3, and then a prayer for justice, verses 4 and 5. And then that takes us to a mighty fortress, verses 1 and 2. What do you think is the safest place in the world? If you were to have to name the safest place in the world, you could pick any place that you wanted to go, what would be the safest place in the world? Some would argue that it's Fort Knox in Kentucky. Fort Knox is said to hold 5,000 tons of gold. It's defended with a radar with laser-censored machine guns, landmines, an electric fence, not to mention battalions of soldiers. And then the vault is in the basement, deep underground with a 20-ton door. Uh, And the code to that door, uh, no one person has the code, but several people each have a separate piece of the code. Maybe Fort Knox is the safest place in the world. Or maybe it's the White House in Washington, D.C. They've got an armed guard with bulletproof windows, infrared sensors, surface-to-air missiles, a high-tech laser system, drones, and the historical climb-resistant fence, and it's filled with Secret Service agents who are willing to give their lives. And if that's not secure enough for you, there's a bunker under the East Wing where the president would go in the case of a nuclear attack. Or maybe you think it's Vatican City, Right, where they keep the Vatican archives holding ancient documents. Or you could say it's Area 51 in the Las Vegas desert holding some of the world's biggest secrets. Or if you like superheroes, maybe it's the Hall of Justice. Or if you like Lord of the Rings, maybe it's Helm's Deep. But for the Hebrew, the safest place in the world was Mount Zion. Look at verse 1. Like Mount Zion which cannot be moved, but abides forever. In the Hebrew mind, sea and water reflected chaos, right? But mountains represented stability. A mountain was immovable, unshakable, and permanent, like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. But here's the thing. This immovable, unshakable picture of security that's portrayed here in the psalm? It's a comparison. And do you know what it's being compared to? It's being compared, look at the beginning of verse 1, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. It's a simile. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Now notice here that it's not your trust Right, that is immovable like Mount Zion. It's not your trust that's immovable like Mount Zion, and that's a good thing, because if you're like me, that would hardly be how I would describe my trust. My trust is not immovable and abiding forever. My trust flits about with the lifespan of a gnat or the strength of a snowflake. If I were describing, if this was describing the strength of my trust, I would be disqualified. You see, I don't have trust like that. But the simile isn't describing the nature of the trust. It's describing the security of the one who trusts. You see, if you're truly trusting in the Lord, no matter the strength of your trust, this simile is describing your security. It's describing your reality. 
It's telling you, Christian, you are secure. Like the safest place in the world is secure. You're more secure than Fort Knox. You're more secure than the White House. You're more secure than the Hall of Justice. And we need security. Did you know that secure attachment is essential for childhood development? Secure attachment helps a child's brain to organize and develop. And secure attachment leads to that feeling of safety for a child that causes an eagerness to learn, self-awareness, trust, and empathy. Right? We need security. We need security to develop properly. And we don't just see this in children. We also see it in society. Right? Ancient cities needed to develop security and safety in order to establish trade and politics and education. So they spent time and resources building defenses like moats and walls. Because it's hard to trade for milk when marauders keep stealing your cows. It's hard to study when people keep burning your books, right? Societies needed safety. Societies needed security. In Maslow's hierarchy of needs, safety and security are characterized as basic needs, right? So right after the physiological needs of food and water and warmth and rest, do you know what you need next? You need safety and security. We need security. And if you're trusting in the Lord, you are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved and which abides forever. You have immovable, unshakable, and everlasting security. And where does that security come from? Look at verse 2. It's another simile. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds His people from this time forth and forevermore. You see, verse 1 gives the reality you are more secure than you could possibly imagine. And verse 2 gives the reason. Why are you secure? Why do you have that kind of eternal security? Because the Lord surrounds you. He is our refuge. He is our shield. He is our fortress. He surrounds us to defend us, to protect us, to keep us secure. But there's a difference between the security of Mount Zion as the Lord surrounds us and the security of Fort Knox or the White House or even the Hall of Justice. And that difference shows up in the last word in both verses 1 and 2. And that last word in verse 1 and verse 2 is the same word in Hebrew, though it shows up differently in your English translations. In verse 1, it's forever. In verse 2, it's forevermore. You see, what the psalm is telling you is that you're secure forever. And you see, when, we're, when you think about it, right, we're on this ball of molten lava with this paper-thin crust that's orbiting around a ball of burning gas 
that's traveling 500,000 miles per hour through the universe, right? And it needs to orbit that this ball of molten lava needs to orbit this ball of gas at just the right distance. And it needs to rotate at just the right speed in order for us to even exist. And so if you think <laughs> that some bunker under the White House is going to keep you safe, you're thinking far too small. But the security that the psalmist offers lasts forever. You see, come what may on this little planet, he has your future in his hands. And that's the only place that you can find real rest, real peace, real security. He indeed is a mighty fortress, a fortress that lasts forever. But here's the thing. How did he become a fortress for you? Remember when I said there were only two kinds of people? There are those who are trusting in the Lord, verse 1, and those who are turning aside to their crooked ways. I could see you as I was telling that. <laughs> and I could see you wrestling and processing. Because if you're a believer this morning, don't we have both of those in our hearts? Aren't there seasons when we're trusting? And aren't there seasons when we're turning? And sometimes it's more of one and, and less of the other. And sometimes it's more of the other and less of one. But it's an ongoing battle in our hearts. And if the Lord is a fortress for the trusting but we are both trusting and turning. How is he our fortress? Well, you see, there was another sojourner who had his own pilgrimage to Zion, his own journey to Jerusalem. This place wasn't his home. He was a foreigner, an alien, a traveler. And his whole life was a journey to Jerusalem. His whole life was a pilgrimage to Zion. It was, what, it was his final destination and it oriented his whole journey. And he knew what would happen on that mountain. Verse 1, he trusted in the Lord perfectly, completely. He never moved. His trust could not be moved. His trust abided forever. He was wholly righteous, verse 3, and never stretched out his hand to do wrong, even in the midst of incredible injustice. Verse 4, he was truly good and upright in his heart. But verse 5, he was led away with evildoers. He was led away with the turning. Why? To take our place. To take the punishment that we deserved. So as His life, death, and resurrection surrounds us, as we're united to Him by faith, we can begin more and more to trust in the Lord, verse 1. To become those who are good, verse 4. So that we might be declared righteous, verse 3. And upright in heart, verse 4. And receive peace, verse 5, forever. You see, believers, it's only as we are hidden in Christ that we become those who are trusting. That we become more and more like Him with everything that He secured on our behalf. You see, Jesus is our mighty fortress. St. Patrick, who was a 5th century 
missionary and bishop in Ireland. It's where we get St. Patrick's Day. He captured the idea of Christ surrounding us like this. Christ be with me. Christ within me. Christ behind me. Christ before me. Christ beside me. Christ to win me. Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ in quiet. Christ in danger. Christ in hearts of all that love me. Christ in mouth of friend and stranger. You see, He surrounds us. And as we take refuge in Jesus, in our mighty fortress, as we hide ourselves in Him, our final destination comes into focus. And focusing on our final destination can give us hope, even in the darkness. One of my favorite movie scenes of all time is from The Return of the King. And Gandalf, the white wizard, and Pippin, uh, a hobbit, are defending a city, Minas Tirith. But they've been, they've been beaten several times. They've retreated further and further back into the city, and the battle rages all around them. And there's this constant thudding, right, in the background, and it's the troll who's breaking down the door, and there's nowhere left to go, and their death seems inevitable. And Pippin says, I didn't think it would end this way. And there's a deep peace and a quiet calm in Gandalf's answer. And Gandalf replies, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. And then you can see Gandalf fixing his gaze on another reality. And he describes it like this. The gray rain curtain of this world rolls back and all turns to silver glass. And then you see it. See what? Gandalf, Pippin replies. See what? Gandalf measures his words carefully. White shores and beyond. A far green country under a swift sunrise. Well, Pippin says, that isn't so bad. No, Gandalf says with a warm smile. No, it isn't. You see, sometimes as the battle rages around us, we need to remember that we need to keep our eye on the mountain. Because one day, brothers and sisters, we are going home. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's children's stories, but I would contend that they were written for adults as well. The children are experiencing this amazing new land where they can run as fast as they can fly and they can swim up waterfalls and they see Aslan, the lion who represents Christ. And they're afraid that once again they're going to be sent away from Narnia, this favorite of all places, this most beautiful place that's brimming with adventure, and that they'll be sent back to their own worlds, and they're sad. Then Aslan turned to them and said, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed 
Their hearts leaped, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, Aslan said softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. That's where you're going, believer. That's your final destination. And sometimes in the darkness, you've got to keep your eye on the mountain. So when your journey takes you through darkness, pray for justice and take refuge in the mighty fortress. May you know your final destination and may that orient you on your journey. And always, always keep your eye on the mountain. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you use our sanctified imaginations to capture the beauty of what it means that one day we will behold you face to face in light and glory, that we will be transformed, that darkness will finally end, and we will be home. And Father, as we fix our eyes on the mountain, I pray that you would orient our whole journey in this life, that we might become more and more like the one who took the journey for us, even you.